Good evening. My name is um, Naji Mawad. I'm a parishioner at St. Ephraim for the past 20 years. And for 15 of those years, I taught scripture here. And I'm here tonight to talk to you about the Bible. How do we read it and why it is important? I'm going to do that in three parts. The first part is to give you an overview of what the scripture is all about. What is its purpose in your life? The second one is talk to you about some of the difficulties that we encounter today because of the context that we live in. And in the third part, I will go through specific passages and show you how they are typically misinterpreted and how we need to interpret them properly and how the difference actually impacts our lives. So the scriptures, the Bible, I hope um, you have a Bible. If you don't, you should get one. Uh, and if you want to get a Bible, I would suggest this one, the Ignatius Holy Bible. And it comes, you can buy the tabs, it comes with it, which is actually very helpful. Scripture is about what God is doing in our lives. I want you to remember this. Scripture is not about what we are doing. It's about what God is doing in our lives. God wrote three Bibles. The universe is one. You can learn a lot about God through the universe. If you are in the sciences, if you study quantum physics, if you study um, the entire history of the universe, the Big Bang, you learn a lot from the sciences about what God is doing. The second Bible that God wrote is the family. You learn a lot about God through the family, through a mother and a father and the children. And the third Bible that God wrote is this one. In the Bible, there is the beginning, which is the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis introduces God's first plan for humanity. He brings Adam and Eve, and his intention is to gift them the entire planet. But he starts by putting them into a garden. And then we know the story. Adam and Eve disobeyed. And then from then on, it is the story of God coming back over and over and over again to a sinful, rebellious, and stubborn humanity so that he can make know, know his love to them and bring them back to him. In this process, God chooses Israel to be his chosen people. There's a lot of confusion about why God chose Israel. The reason, and I can't now go through all the details, is because Israel tracks back to the firstborn son. The whole idea, and if you read the book of Genesis, you can basically summarize it by the failure of the firstborn son. In the book of Genesis, every firstborn son fails to do what he's supposed to do, with one exception. 
and that is Set, the son of Noah. Apart from him, every firstborn son messes it up. Nevertheless, spiritually, when you read the genealogy, it runs all the way down to Jacob, Israel. By the way, for those of you taking notes, this is important. When you're reading scripture, those three terms I'm going to give you right now do not mean the same thing. A Hebrew is not the same thing as an Israelite, and it's not the same thing as a Jew. If you confuse those three, you're not going to understand the scriptures. A Hebrew is a son of Eber. Eber is seven generation or six generation up from Abraham. Therefore, according to the scripture, all the Arabs are Hebrews because they descend from Abraham and therefore they go back up to Eber. That is very important to keep in mind and understand because at the end of the day, most of the scripture is a family affair. Secondarily, Israelites are all sons of Jacob who was named Israel. So Israelites are Hebrews, not all Hebrews are Israelites. And third, Jews are the son or descendant of Judah, who is, if I'm not mistaken, the third son of Israel. So all Jews are Israelites, not all Israelites are Jews. Here's one example of the importance of understanding the scripture and if you don't have that context in head, when you hear the scripture being read to you, you're not going to be able to catch the importance of those words. Now, God comes back and then calls his people out, Israel, as the firstborn son, to do what? To disciple all the other sons, all the other nations. Why did God choose Israel? So that Israel could go out and bring all the lost children of God back to him. That's what it meant to be a chosen people. They were not chosen as in preferred or better. They were chosen for a mission. If you drop the mission, chosen makes no sense. And Therefore, you see how Israel actually is rebellious against God for the most part. And yet God comes back over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament, trying to bring Israel back and preparing them for the coming of Christ. Jesus Christ then comes ushering in the new covenant and he institutes this new covenant, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute. And then he dies and he's risen. And then he ascends into heaven. That's essentially the New Testament up to and excluding the book of Revelation, the last book in the scripture. So the New Testament is about the fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. So from the Genesis, you see that God made a promise. He basically told Adam and Eve, I am going to give you everything. They messed it up. God could have pulled away and said, 
forget them, I'm done. But because he is love, he didn't. He comes back and as Israel falls and falls and falls and falls again, God comes back again and again and again to prop them back up and prepare them for the coming of Christ. Christ comes and fulfills everything that was promised and establishes his church. And then he ascends to heaven. Here is one psychological mistake that I believe many Catholics today make. And if you want to know if you're making that mistake or not, I want you to think about your anxiety. If you're anxious, you're making that mistake. It's that simple. Mistake is to think that God is an absentee God. Jesus went to heaven and then he left everything sort of to us. And he's not concerned and he has no say in what is going on right now. There is this divorce mentally that many Catholic and Christians fall into because they do not understand the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, otherwise known as the Apocalypse, which is a misnomer, is not about the end of time. It's not about the end of time only. It is far more than that. The book of Revelation continues from where the rest of Scripture left off. It is basically showing us how Jesus is governing the world. There isn't a day that goes by on this planet that the will of the Lord Jesus Christ is not made perfectly. I'm going to repeat that because I know most of you are going to be challenged to believe that. There is not a day that goes by on this planet where the Lord, where the will of the Lord Jesus Christ is not completed perfectly. If you believe that, you would not be anxious. So then, end to end, the scripture shows us how God came, gave Adam and Eve that gift which they squandered. He did not abandon them. And throughout the entire Old Testament, we see him coming back over and over again. And as he does that, the conscience of Israel is evolving. Their understanding who God is is evolving. They're learning to know who he is. Jesus comes and completes what was started, perfects it, and he is reigning now forever and ever. That's in a summary the whole purpose of Scripture to tell us about the glory of God, not about our answer. Which is why when you read the scripture, you will see oftentimes the reaction of the humans to any given action by God is extremely minimal. And most of the time, the subjective reaction, how they feel about it, is not even mentioned. Because that's not the perspective. It isn't about how we feel about something but it's about what God is doing. 
How does that translate into our lives? I'll show you how this misconception of Scripture, in other words, if you go to Scripture thinking somehow that you're going to be able to understand how we react to God, you're going to be sorely disappointed. That's not about, it's not about that. It's more about discovering what God wants from us. This, my friends, is similar to the Mass. You may have heard, or you may have yourself thought, people saying that the Mass is boring. That the liturgy is boring. I would be hard-pressed if I could find a young men today who would think that the liturgy is more exciting than a video game. The reason of that error is because we think that we're coming to the liturgy to get something. It's like we're doing God a favor. We're coming here so God should give us something. But that's not at all the purpose of the liturgy. In fact, you see it in the teaching of the church. You're not required to receive the Eucharist every time you come to Mass. I mean, you should, but it's not a requirement. Interesting. The church does not, the church requires you to come to Mass every Sunday, and if you don't, it's a mortal sin. But the church does not require you to receive communion every Sunday, and if you don't, it is not a sin. It only, the church, she only requires you to receive communion once a year. Isn't that odd? So why is that requirement to come to Mass every Sunday? Well, as with most everything, it's much easier to understand it in the context of a family. So su suppose you say to yourself that you love your mother and you love her dearly. But you only visit her once a year. Is that action reflective of love? Or are you being a hypocrite? Or you just met a young woman and you tell her that you love her, but you only see her once a year. Is that reflective of love or is it hypocrisy? God, in his divinity, came down to earth, died to give us life. He, he owed us nothing. He was perfectly happy without us. We don't add anything to his happiness. There's nothing we can do to make God more happier than he was before he created the whole world. But he came, he died for us. The reason when we come to Sunday Mass once a week is to say thank you. Is to give God the glory that is his. So the purpose of the Mass is twofold. One, we come to say thank you and then two we learn to love God that's the purpose of mass prayers of petition and all the things that we hold in our heart are secondary and if you're wondering sometimes why is God not hearing my prayers 
Well, it's a sort of a similar thing that if you sort of tell your mom or your dad you love them, you go to see them once a year, and then you have a list of things you want them to do for you. Are you surprised that they would probably say no? Do you understand the psychology? Okay. That's how you read scripture. When you read scripture this way, it really transforms your life. All right. One more note that is very important. This is key. There are two ways to read scripture. The way that St. Ephraim, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Teresa of Avila, all the doctors of the church read scripture was, this is the truth. My job is not to question the truth. My job is to understand the truth and share the truth. That's how I taught scripture. It was never about doubting what's in there. So about explaining what's in there. Okay. Then there is the prevalent theological current that dominates Catholic thinking and Protestant thinking since the 19th century, which stems mostly from Germany. You see, the German theologians, both on the, mostly on the Protestant side initially, and the Catholic ones joined them later, decided that the New Testament, particularly the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, were written 100 to 300 years after Christ. Okay. That's the majority position today of most Catholic theologians. That's what they believe. Once you make that assumption, you basically are now in a world where none of the authors who wrote the Gospels were living witnesses of Christ. Once you do that, everything in the Gospel becomes suspect. You get to choose whether Jesus did this miracle or he didn't. Because after all, if the Gospels were written between 100 and 300 years later, how do you know that, let's say, the multiplication of bread was an actual miracle, a historical verifiable fact, or an allegory, a, a nice story to reveal something about Jesus? Tell me, how many of you have heard that sermon in Catholic churches about the multiplication of the bread, where the priest will say that Jesus really didn't multiply anything. The real miracle of Jesus was to open up the hearts of people because everybody came hoarding their own food. And when they heard the good words of Jesus, their heart was softened and then they shared with their neighbors. Anyone of you have heard that? Yeah. Okay, that, my friends, is diabolical. And it is anti-Semitic. And by anti-Semitic, I don't only mean in the narrow sense of the Jews, I mean of all the Semitic people, of which 
many of us here, right, are in many ways Semite. Now, many of you here, I would suspect, are from the Middle East. Have you ever been in a situation where you go somebody, somewhere and you have a bunch of people coming together and hoarding their food and not sharing with others? Is that how people from the Middle East work? Tell me. So what is behind that? It is fundamentally a German anti-Semitic strand. And it is very strong, and I will give you one example. That German anti-Semitic strand is so strong that when the Germans finally came to study St. Ephraim, who's a doctor of the church, and who wrote only in Syriac, they looked at each other and said, where's the Greek? Because it is impossible for any theologian to be learned and not learn Greek. They are fixated on the Greek and they hate anything that is Semitic. Here's an example. This book here is from a leading theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar. I don't know if anybody's heard of him. Hans Urs von Balthasar is quoted by Pope Benedict XVI, by John Paul II. He is a star. Okay? This particular book, called Cosmic Liturgy, is about Saint Maximus the Confessor. Saint Maximus the Confessor lived in the sixth century and we basically owe him the faith. He lived at a time where most of the bishops were heretics and he was a staunch defender of the faith and he paid for it, he died a martyr. And so Hans Urs von Balthasar is writing about him and at one point he writes this. I'm quoting this not necessarily for you to fully understand this passage because it's obviously part of a book, but to make you aware that today you are living in a current that has as its foundation a theology which is based on this idea that the gospel written in the Greek, none of the authors have seen Jesus, and therefore we can make the gospel say whatever we want. All right. So I'm gonna read this passage and I'll explain why this is, how, how this sort of Greek focused mentality has led these people to go really astray. So he, he's basically saying this, this intrinsically fruitful God is not only the God of the highest goodness as Plato conceived him, okay? So, he's not only the God of the highest goodness as Plato conceived him, not as Isaiah or Jeremiah or Moses, Plato, okay? And it is questionable whether Plato conceived God as the highest goodness, but let's set that aside. But the God of Christian love, Here, erotic love and selfless charity rejoin each other at the highest level as they do in Pseudo-Dionysus and the generally indifferent but benevolent providence of ancient philosophy. The generally indifferent but benevolent providence of ancient philosophy. Where does he have, where does he find benevolent providence? Providence is really synonymous for us as the Holy Spirit. In ancient philosophy, what is the ancient philosophy? The Greeks. Not in the scripture, 
in ancient philosophy. Okay? It's transformed almost automatically to the divine love of the Sermon of the Mount. So basically, the Sermon of the Mount is taking the Greek philosophy and transforming it into something higher. Do you see how the slant is completely Greek? And that is predicated upon this notion that the scriptures were written 100 to 300 years later by Greek-speaking Christians. That has nothing to do with Christ. It's not telling you that it is Christ who was inspired by those ancient philosophers. He's saying that the authors of the gospel are inspired by these ancient philosophers. Okay? And he keeps on going, and then he adds this. Only this makes, makes it understandable why Maximus sees such a distance between the narrow, imperfect, and almost insubstantial Jewish image of God. Narrow, imperfect, insubstantial Jewish image of God. With which in its emptiness approaches atheisms. Which in its emptiness approaches atheisms. So the image of God in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in the Book of Wisdom is in its emptiness it approaches atheisms. This is a leading Catholic theologian. By the way, I have a beef with those guys because they made my life really miserable. Because when I accepted to teach scripture, my idea was, okay, I can read. I'll find some good theologians, right? Somebody who interprets scripture. I'll read what they say and I'll come and parrot it back. And then I had to put up with those guys. That's the background which explains why we have so much confusion, which explains why the liturgy was completely messed up after Vatican II. It's not because of the council, it's because of those guys. Okay? Which is why I'm calling on you, because you are like me. We're not making a career out of studying scripture. Our ego is not tied to writing papers and show off to other theologians our knowledge of the Greek and the Latin. We just want to understand scripture so we can live a better life. You have the means. You can pick up books and then start reading it and then teaching each other about the Word of God. All right. One last thing that I'll say before I get into some of the passages. How much time do I have? Okay. The covenant. Here's the other thing you want to remember. The covenant. The new covenant, old covenant. What's a covenant? Covenant is an agreement between two parties. But it is an agreement between a strong party and a weak party. Typically, king comes and conquers the city. Once he conquers the city, he establishes a covenant. And he tells the citizens of the city, here are the rules. You're going to pay taxes this way. 
you are going to send some of your sons to be part of my army, and you are not going to side with my enemies. If you do that, those are my good conditions. If you do that, in a year I come back and I make you citizens of my kingdom. If you don't, I turn you into slaves. So the covenant is a structure that worked in ancient times and God in the scriptures adopted it. So Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden and then he told them what they're supposed to do. If they were to do this, he, he would bless them. And if they don't, they will surely die. So a covenant has tied into it blessings and curses. So God blesses and God curses. Now, that idea of God curses today is really, really hard because we live in a, in a sea of confusion about God's mercy. Most of the time, in most churches, the sermon is going to be of God, God's mercy. These days, it's hardly ever to hear a sermon that talks about hell, that talks about judgment, that talks about justice. It's all about God's mercy. Is God merciful? Absolutely, God is merciful. But... Is he unilaterally merciful? That's not what the scripture says. God is not unilaterally merciful. There is a condition to receive God's mercy. Do you know what that condition is? Anybody want to wager an answer? Yes? Obedience. Obedience. You're close. Yes? Confession. You're closer. That's it. Repent. Right? What does it mean to repent? It means that you have the attitude of that sinner who was at the back of the temple, not daring to go close, right? And saying, have mercy on me, God. There is a sense where you want to do God's will. You hate the sin that you're in. You recognize you're a sinner. You hate it. You don't like it. And you want to do his will. As long as you have that attitude, that compulsion to want to do God's will, to want to love Him, God will have mercy on you. But if you stand before the Lord and you tell Him, okay, uh, this is how I'm going to live. I'm going to choose to do things which are against your law and against your, your, the law of your church. Because I know better. Because they're better for me. So, for instance, um, I'm going to cheat on my taxes. But you're merciful and you forgive, you forgive me. That's when the curses are triggered. God is no fool. Would you, would you put up with an employee who's stealing from you? Would you keep having mercy on him? Would you do that? See, it's basic justice and we're made in the image of God. So don't let anyone fool you into thinking that mercy means licentiousness. Do whatever you want and God continues to forgive you. No, it's not true. You wouldn't do it. Why would God do it? You need to repent. You need to change your heart. You need to tell God, I really want to do what you want me to do. But maybe you can't. Maybe you're too weak. Maybe you're stuck into some habitual sin. God understands that. He's not going to abandon you, and He will continue to shower you with His mercy. But don't harden your heart. Don't say, here I stand. This is my way or the highway. But I want God's mercy.
You wouldn't give mercy to anybody who would do that to you. Why would God do it to you? So remember the covenant and be faithful to the covenant. Work to become true children of the church. Work to love the church. Work to be truly like trees planted in the garden of Our Lady. Do the best you can. God will do the rest. And yes, confession. I don't know about you, but I, do, I go to confession weekly. If I could go to confession daily, I would. I am addicted to confession. If you're wondering why, I'm going to put it really, really simple for you. I want to know how many of you wash yourself once a month. Raise your hand. No, no, no. Wash your body. How many of you wash your body once a month? Raise your hand. Nobody. Okay. Why, why, why wouldn't you wash your body once a month? The guys among here, the, all of us guys would, would be thinking, hey, that would be really cool. Right? I mean, really cool. Right? When we shower, us guys, we're like kind of, okay, today I'm going to just wash my shoulder. I'll do the rest next week. Right, guys? So, we, okay. Gals are different. But why don't you wash yourself once a month? Because you can't stand to be in that dirt. Okay. So if you cannot stand to have bodily dirt on you, how come are you able to stand having spiritual dirt on you? I want you to think about that. Bingo. See? So, I'm putting it out to you in these stark terms because this is what it is. Confession is going to the tribunal of mercy. You want mercy? You want God's mercy? Confession. You're going to be forgiven, you're going to be washed inside, and you're going to be made new. But yes, we forget. We have other things. So think about it. This is a spiritual combat, my friends. This life is a spiritual combat, and the price is heaven, and it's in your own hands. All right, so, so far, what I've told you, very briefly, is the overall outline of Scripture, and I've pointed out some of the difficulties we have because of the current theological current we're living in that stemmed mostly from Germany. And... I'm, what I'm going to do now is go through specific texts in the scriptures and show you some of the common errors you might hear here or there on the radio or elsewhere and hopefully correct those. But just those are highlights. And I hope that it's going to whet your appetite for you to out your, your, your sleeves and then to dig into it. So I'm going to start with Genesis 2.15. Uh, sorry, Genesis 1.14. This is the first chapter of Genesis. And in this first chapter of Genesis, God is essentially talking about the creation of the world. The reason I'm mentioning this is because some of you may have heard about the big controversies going on, right? Is it that God created the world in six days or like six 24 days? Or is it the Big Bang? And how do we reconcile all this? What is Scripture saying? Like I said, we take Scripture for granted. This is what Scripture is saying and we'll live by it. So I'm going to point one thing to you in Scripture is really important to sort of help highlight a little bit how we should orient ourselves towards reading this. Now, 
this is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so we're going through this beautiful text of the creation. Verse 14, and that's after the earth has been created and water and dry land have been separated. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. So when is God doing all this? After he created the grass. This is not cosmological order. The stars were not created before the earth. I'm sorry, the stars were not created after the earth, right? But that's the order that the sacred writer chose. Why? Why did he choose that order? Because in a fundamental sense, the author of Genesis is pointing out that everything in this world that is created is natural. There are no magic forces. Back then, as it is today, they lived in an environment where many people believe that the stars can influence your life. Today, we call that what? A horoscope. Okay? And by the way, if you are reading your horoscope, or if you are reading in those coffee mugs, stop. I'm serious. Stop. You're angering God. Stop doing that. Horoscopes are the idea that the stars influence our lives. That idea that is living today, prevalent today, it was still living back then. And so by putting the creation of the stars and the sun and the moon after the creation of the grass, the author of scripture is saying, you're an idiot if you think these things influence your life. That's the intent of this order. So the first chapter of Genesis was never written with the intent to tell you the scientific creation of the universe. It was meant to teach people about God. Don't look for influence in the stars or natural things. Look for influence in God and only in God. Do you see how just by understanding this, it completely switches the meaning of the text and its intent? Okay, let's move on. Genesis 2.15. Now, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Let me ask you this question. When you think about the Garden of Eden, what kind of picture comes to mind? What, what do you think it looks like? I'm sorry? Okay, jungle. Paradise. Flowers, right? Right? Maybe, guys, you're thinking, lying on the beach, a mojito in your hand, right? Taking it easy. Is that, is that closer to the idea of paradise or Garden of Eden? Yeah? Okay. It is completely false. Because we don't read the scriptures, we make up this notion of what the Garden of Eden was. Watch. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. That's the covenant. But what did he put God, Adam to do there? What is he supposed to do? Those two words? Till and guard. What is tilling? Yeah. And guess what, guys? When that started, there were no weekends. There were no days off. There's no vacation and benefits. That's the Garden of Eden. You're there to till and guard 24-7. But this idea that it's sort of, you know, they were there for, you know, God gave them to, like, you know, is so encrusted in our head, it completely changes the meaning. What was God's intent? Why did he put Adam, Adam specifically, not Eve, Adam, the guys, why did he put them there to till and guard? Why? Because he is training him. He wants to give him and to give her the whole planet. But like a good father, right? Like your, your, your mother and your daughter comes to you and says, Hey mom, she's seven by the way. Mom, give me the keys to the car. I'm going to go to the mall. Do you hand her over the keys to the car? Would you? No. What do you do? Say, okay, how about we do this? You buy her one of those little cars. Right? And put her in the backyard. And you tell her, okay, how about you just try driving this? You're training her, yes? Okay. Go to your bed and maybe we'll think about the car. It's called training. That's what God is doing. He's training him into what? Into understanding who God is. And there'll be way more I have to say about this, but I don't have time for it. Just this again to point out to you how we misinterpret scripture, how we have these wrong ideas in our head, and it affects us because we think, oh, I would have loved to be in the Garden of Eden. No. No, no weekends, man. Forget it. Do you see how things change? But what is God doing for me? What is He doing for you? Why is He putting you here? What are you supposed to do? Do you know? What is the purpose of your life? Two words. Till and guard. What are you supposed to till? What is tilling? It's working the ground, right? Making so it can become productive. What is the garden that you are supposed to till and guard? Your soul. Are you tilling and guarding your soul? How do you till your soul? Well, you have to know the virtues. You have to know the vices, and you have to work to grow your virtues and uproot the vices. I'm not going to make a test, but how many of you know the seven virtues, the seven cardinal virtues? What about vices? Do you know what, is, what vices you are most prone to and what virtues you are most prone to? Do you do an examination of conscience? Do you know your garden? Or have you just abandoned it and you're busy elsewhere? You and I have an account. We will have to account for what we have done to our soul before the throne and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And my friends, that could happen tonight.
Do not presume to think that you will live one minute more than right now. Are you tilling and guarding your soul? And by the way, what I just told you is near and dear to the fathers. The fathers have this reading about scripture called recapitulation. It's a reading of the scripture where they see in the scripture the phases of the human soul. When we are born, we are born in a garden. And then as we grow, we lose our innocence and we're kicked out. And we wander in the wilderness. And we're lost. And God comes and meets us. And he brings us to the promised land. What is the promised land? We're in it right now. The Catholic Church. So we become Catholic. Or we discover our faith and we become fervent and we think we made it. We become like the apostles. We think the kingdom of God is going to come. Jesus Christ is Arden Schwarzenegger. He's going to sit on his kingdom. He's going to kick out all the Romans, all the bad guys out, and we're going to be ruling with him. But then we discover that's not it. It's toil and it is suffering and it is the cross that we all have to bear. So the whole reading of the scripture end-to-end -end becomes a reflection, a mirror of your own soul. So as you become more acquainted with the scriptures, you become more acquainted with your own soul. All right, let's keep moving. Most of the other texts I'm going to pick out are from the New Testament because you, especially for us Maronites, we don't have, you know, we don't have many readings of the Old Testament, so I'm sticking with the New because I think they're sort of important. The first one I'm going to talk about is Matthew. 111 actually the first chapter of matthew as you know the the the, the book of uh, matthew starts with the book of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham and we have these names the begats right and most of us sort of glaze over like what is the purpose of all of this here's what the purpose is god made promises he promised that the seed of Abraham will bless the nations. So he promised that the Messiah will come through Abraham. He promised he will come from Judah. He promised he will come from David. The problem, my friends, is that with the King Jeconia, when the King Jeconia was reigning in about six, um, 657 BC, he allied himself with the Egyptians against Babylon and the Babylonians have had it so they came they took him away they plucked his eyes they killed his children and took him into exile at that point the genealogy stopped as far as the Jews were concerned how is God going to be able to keep his promise when the sons of the king are dead. That's why this genealogy is so important. Because after Jeconia, he's the only one repeated twice in this genealogy, by the way, there is a list of names which are not found in the Old Testament. Those are the names of the royal lineage of David that went into hiding. No one knew about them. That's why it's so important. God keeps his promise. 
This genealogy is one that I would suggest, and I have I've done that study here of all the names. If you sit and study the names, you learn so much about what they had to do to pass on the faith. Down the road, this genealogy is written in blood. This genealogy is written in sweat and in tears. These are people who had to carry on the faith so that Christ could be born. And after Jaconia, there's this break point where suddenly we discover all those names. What, what, what do you think St. Matthew and St. Luke got those names from? They were not privy to this whole genealogy. They must have received it either from Our Lady, presumably from Our Lady, and it either is her genealogy, her, her lineage, or that of St. Joseph. It's sort of like today in France, if you Google it, you will find the King of France. There is a descendant to Louis XVI who is alive today and who would be the rightful King of France. Most people don't know about him. But that genealogy continued. Likewise here. This is why this is so important. So next time you hear it, what you want to think about is your role, your role in perpetuating the faith, passing it on. Let me, let me try and put it to you, for you in this perspective. Um, suppose you get married and you have children and these children have children and they have children and they have children. And let's assume for a second, unlike what most American thinks, that the end of the world is not tomorrow. Let's assume for a second that the end of the world is going to come about the year 122,346 AD. I just want you to think about this genealogy that I just started for you. In 100,000 years, how many descendants owe their life to you? And imagine if these descendants were in heaven. You've, you've heard the, the parable of the talents, right? Well, for most of us here who are lay folks, what is the most important talent? It's children. So if you're still living with this, uh, with this lie that you only have one or two kids, understand that this is the devil whispering in your ears. If you are still living with this lie that, oh, children are expensive, so we have to limit them, the devil is whispering in your ear. My wife, I had, my wife and I had only seven kids because it stopped after the seven. I was gunning for 14 because I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. Think about it. Think about how this scripture and reading it really transforms you. Okay, let me keep moving. I don't have a lot of time. So, yeah, absolutely. 
We know friends of ours, they have 13 children right now. Listen to me, you and I are living in a society that is whispering lies in your ears. Making a child, which is always a blessing in the scripture, look like a curse. A child is always a blessing from God. Okay, now, I'm going to skip this one. I'm just going to go to two particular passages that really irks me because their interpretation is so wrong. Here's one. You've probably heard it a number of times. This is Matthew 10, 28. All right. Now, here's the context. In the, in the Gospels, by the way, there are three terms you need to keep in mind. Three. Very important. The crowd. That's one. The Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Romans. That's two. Disciples. That's three. And the fourth one, the apostles. And if Jesus is talking to one of these group, the meaning is completely different. Based on who is he talking to. You can't take a, a passage of scripture and understand it without first realizing who is he talking to. When you do that, you get what Scott Hahn calls a text becomes a pretext because it's out of context. Okay? So here's an example. The Lord is saying, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? He's talking now to his own, to his disciples, right? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And then he adds... And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. Who is the him who can destroy body and soul in hell? That's the typical, 99% of the time, you think that God is telling you to fear the devil. Because the devil can destroy body and soul in hell. What is the power of demons? The power of demons is only one, and only one. They can whisper. Demons cannot read your thoughts, because that would be invasion of your freedom. They, they don't know what you're thinking, if you're thinking it, but they can whisper. They cannot send you to hell. You, and by your action, are going to get condemned to hell. So who is the one who kills the body and soul into hell? Jesus Christ. That's who you must fear. Do you see how suddenly this changes the meaning of everything? Yeah. You fear the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? You give him his glory. He is the Lord. You recognize that and you act accordingly. That's what it means. Not you're groveling on, on the ground and afraid that you can't even know, but you recognize who he is his glory, his majesty, his authority. You give him all that, that's what it means to fear him. He can send you to hell. He can consign you. You can't go to hell on your own. Just as you cannot go to heaven on your own, you cannot go to hell on your own. He consigns you to one or the other. It is his authority. Just recognize that. All right. My last passage I've covered is Matthew 16, 
13, you are Peter. And there's one bit of it that I just want to point out to you. Okay. So, Christ says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Okay? The power of death shall not prevail against it. Most of the time, this understanding is that the power of death is not going to be able to overwhelm the church. Okay? But the other reading is that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The idea of the gates is that if you've seen the second movie of the Lord of the Rings, how many of you have seen the second movie of the Lord of the Rings? Anybody here? Okay. For those who didn't, there is this big city, it has a big gate, and there is an army outside. Okay? And eventually, the army breaks through the gate. When an army outside breaks through the gates of a city, we say that the gates of that city did not prevail against them. It did not hold long enough to prevail that army from getting into the city. So when the Lord Jesus Christ says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against her, it doesn't mean that the church is on the defensive. It means that the church is on the offensive. And what does it mean to open the gates of Hades? Well, my friends, this is one key passage for the whole doctrine of purgatory. The graces of the church penetrates even into Hades, which is different than hell. I don't have time to go through the construction there, but there is a part where in, the, in times of the Jews, we call this limbo, where the souls of the just wait, went and waited for God to come and take them up to heaven. St. Peter in his letter talks about that. That was different from the damned. So that gate was opened by the power of Christ so that the grace of Christ could penetrate among the dead and bring them up to heaven. Do you see how that completely changes the meaning? All right. Oh yeah, and the last passage I need to mention to you because this is really irksome is, yeah, whenever two or three, that one kills me. This is in Matthew 18. Listen carefully to this. So in Matthew chapter 18, and I promise I'm gonna finish after this. So thank you for being a little patient with me. Okay. The chapter starts like this. At the time the disciples came to Jesus, and he's talking to his disciples. Among the disciples are the apostles. Okay? That's the beginning of the chapter. Now, you drop down to chapter 17, a little bit before, and he says, okay, uh, chapter 18 specifically. Listen carefully. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Who do you think is he talking to here? All of us? Do we have power to bind and loose? No. Who has that power? This is the ecclesiology. This is the structure of the church. It's the bishops and priests, right? Why? Because he gave Peter that power and he gave the apostles that power, but not all of us, yeah? Okay. That's the context. You with me? 
That is the context for what is to come right after. Listen. Okay. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. What was he talking a minute ago before that? Binding and loosing. Who was he talking to? The apostles. When two or three are gathered in my name, who is he talking about? The bishops. What, what, what is he establishing here? He's establishing the infallibility of a council of bishops. It has nothing to do with this poetic idea that if three of us get together, he's right there in the middle of us. That would imply that if you have three Catholics all in, in, in mortal sin and they get together, he's going to be right in there between them. This is utter nonsense. And it's driven by ignorance of Scripture. Ignorance of the context and ignorance of the meaning of Scripture. That's what we have to contend with. Which is why, again, I urge you to really think about what you can do next year. What is stopping you from doing what I'm doing? Yes. So, like you said, I, I was under the interpretation that if, you know, we gather together to pray, that Jesus would be in our midst. You know, isn't that... Absolutely not. No. Even if you're not in mortal sin. No, not at all. Okay. He's not... He's not talking about His mercy and His love to be with us. He's talking about ecclesiology, about the structure and authority of the church as he's establishing it. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that he can, on his own, if he so wished, to be among us. But that's not what he's saying. He's not making a blanket check that says, if three of us sit, okay, here we are, three Catholics, we're going to get together, we're going to pray so we can go and then blow up a bank. Well, we were gathered in his name. We're going to blow up a bank. Is he supposed to be with us? Do you see how atrocious and absurd that is? This is when we ignore scripture, we end up with beliefs in our heads which have nothing to do with reality. Okay? Very good. Um, before I close, there is one thing I want to point out to you. What does it mean, hang on if you don't mind a minute, thank you. What does it mean to believe? What does the word I believe mean? Do you know? Is belief, when I say I believe, is it some sort of a subjective experience? It's what's happening inside of me, what I'm feeling, what I'm going through. Is that what we mean, is that what we mean when I say I believe? Put differently, is believing weaker than mathematically proving something to be true. I would wager that most Catholics would think this way. Would think that believing is some subjective experience I'm having, whereas a mathematical proof is objective and undeniable. Okay? 
Let me read to you briefly from the Gospel of Matthew. This is a back translation done by a French theologian. His name is Claude Tresmontan. He basically took the Greek and he basically shows that the Greek translation are really a copy of the Hebrew. Now, here is how he reads that passage that I just read to you. Actually, uh, no, this is different. This is a passage taken from Matthew 16, 8, 12, where he tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees to his apostles. And there are, you know, it's, it's, I love that passage. He tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they look at each other and say, oh, we don't have any bread. Like, they didn't get it at all. Okay? But here's what he says. This is... This, this is obviously taken from the Hebrew. Why are you taking thought in your own hearts? I mean, why are you thinking about within yourselves? You who are, watch how belief, watch what belief means in the Hebrew. You who are weak in the certitude of the truth. The certitude of the truth. That's what believe means. To believe is an intellectual process where you become certain of the truth. To believe is not an act of the will. It's an act of the intellect. It's an act where you become convinced of the truth. Like St. Thomas, when he put his hand in the side of Jesus, when he said, my Lord and my God, he was certain of the truth. And Jesus rebuked him. Blessed are those who believe. Blessed are those who are certain of the truth, but they have not seen and not heard. My friends, this is what belief is. It's not a psychological experience. It's not how you feel about it. It's not singing Kumbaya on the beach. It is getting your intellect aligned with the truth. You will not be saved without your intellect. That is why the study of scripture is so important. All right. Um, I think we can close with a prayer and then um, we can have, uh, do we still have time for questions or we can just close it? What do you think? What do you guys, do you want to close it or do you want to have a, a a bit of Q and A. It's up to you. And and please, those who need to leave, leave. I mean, I'm not holding you back. But before you do, just pick a book and before you go, okay, do me that favor. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. All right, Father, would you please uh, close this with prayers, and then we take Q and A after, so that we can allow others to. Okay. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you and praise you and give you glory for your gift of life, for your death on the cross, for your rising from the dead, and for your church, for our Pope, our Patriarch, our bishops, and our priests, without whom we would not have life. So Lord, tonight we ask you to bless our bishop, bless our priests, bless Father Tufi as he continues on this mission, give him the graces, that he needs to be our pastor and our shepherd and help all of us truly reflect on your word and commit ourselves to you all the days of our lives until we reach heaven where we can praise you and give you glory with all your saints and angels as we pray. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Perfect. Those who want to leave, um, uh, Hannah, could you bring the books in the back, please? Bring the books in the back so they can grab one as they go. Yeah. All right. Questions? Yes. Uh, so you mentioned about the Jew. The definition of a Jew is like a descendant of Judah. Yes. I have read about like how Apostle Paul was a descendant of Benjamin. Does that make him? He's not Great a question. In fact, if you read about that when he speaks of it, he speaks of himself as an Israelite. He doesn't call himself a Jew. Precisely because he is not part of the tribe of Judah. Now, after you know, the diaspora and when all of that was completely destroyed, um, the terms be collapsed. So today, a Hebrew, an Israelite, a Jew really mean, in the minds of most people, the same thing. But not within the context of Scripture. Yeah. But it's a great passage. You go back and read it and it will tell you he's an Israelite, not a Jew. So what happened was that when, uh, when Solomon became a king, right, and he died, his son took his place and raised taxes. That provoked a rebellion, and then the kingdom of David broke into two. The kingdom of Judah in the south, and the kingdom of Israel in the north. And so when you read the, 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 the prophets, you will see there is a wave of prophets that went to the kingdom of Israel. God was angry with them because they built their own temple, right? And they stopped going to Jerusalem, right? For instance, Jonah is a typical example. He's an Israelite, and God comes to him and says, go to Nineveh in Iraq and preach to them. And Jonah knows about past prophecies, and he knows what God is up to. If he goes and preaches in Nineveh, the Ninevites will repent. God will not destroy Nineveh. And the prophecy about them coming down and destroying Israel will happen. So Jonah, being a good Israelite, went to Spain. Okay, that's the context, right? And then you have a set of prophets who went to the kingdom of Judah afterwards. That's why the distinction is really, really important. Another good example is when Jesus sees, um, um, what's his name now, under the tree? No, no, Father, it's when in the Gospel of St. John, when he sees uh, one of the apostles, actually, he was reading under the tree, the fig tree. Uh, I'm sorry? Not Philip. Not Andrew. Um, one of the apostles, anyways, reading under the tree, he goes. No, not, not, not St. Thomas. No, it's another one, yeah. He goes, and then he looks at him and says, here is an Israelite in whom there is no guile, not a Jew, because they were up north. So those distinctions are important. Hmm? Nathaniel. Nathaniel, thank you. Nathaniel, Nathaniel, yes. Questions? Yes. Specific on the genealogies in St. Matthew? I don't know of any. Or, I mean, just of scripture in general, like, of how... 
Yeah, I don't know of any that really covers it properly. It's scattered all over the place. You have to kind of collect it. But you can do that, see? There's nothing that you are lacking from just, for instance, collecting all these commentaries together, even into a blog. That, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. We, we can do that. Yes. Be great, I could use that then. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. Yes, yes. Uh, beautiful. Um, there are two ways to answer, right? I think if you go to the Psalms, there is one particular psalm. I wish I could remember the number, but it's a psalm of praise. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, stars. Praise Him this. Praise Him that. The word praise is repeated all the way through. Just share that with Him. Why is the word praise repeated all the time? What do we have to praise? Like... 60 times, right? So in the scripture, there is repetition. That's one. Two, ask him this question. If, is this, um, um, is this person married or in a relation of some sort? Family member. But is he married or? Yeah, it's actually a guy and a woman, like both. Okay, let me tell you a little joke. There's this woman who is on her deathbed and she's dying. And her husband of 30 years is kneeling next to her. And then he asks her, honey, before you die, was there anything in that, that you, you regret that I didn't do in all these 30 years? And she looked at him mournfully and said, yeah, there is one thing. He said, what? And she said, you didn't tell me that you loved me. And the guy had this very, very pained expression on his face. And he looked at her and said, but honey, the day we got married, I told you I loved you. And if anything changed, I don't have mentioned it. He only told her once. Does that make sense? Why should we repeat? Even when they say, in the Bible, Jesus said, do not repeat the words, you know. I know, but see, this is again, they're, quoting, they're misquoting scripture, right? Because like I said, the, the Psalms repeat. It, that psalm is a repetition of the word praise continuously. What Jesus is talking about is the empty mumbling of invoking magic to deities. Like you're speaking nonsense. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about someone who is in the temple and asking God to forgive him. Here is a beautiful rosary, by the way, different, but it's one that is known in the East among monks. It is basically the rosary of the son of David. You use the same rosary of the Hail Mary, and then you say the Our Fathers, and then on every bead you say, Have mercy on me, son of David, a sinner. Psychologically, we need to do that. We need to repeat that. Because we're entreating God. Yeah? When you have little kids and you want, they want to have candy, and you're holding in candy, what do they say to you? And they're really, really excited. What do they say? What do they say? Please, please, please. Why do they keep repeating it? Why don't you just say it once and wait? Please. Do you understand the psychology behind it? That's what he's missing. Why is he missing it? Because he has no love for Our Lady in his heart. 
Because when you love someone, you want to tell that person you loved her many, many, many times. That's what the rosary is all about. Does that make sense? Okay. That's what they miss. Because they don't live it, they don't experience it, they don't think of it in terms of a loving relationship. They end up killing it, and it looks to them like a dead body. So what you need to do in a situation like this, when you're dealing with a person like that, is pull back from that one point. So you, need to, you have to understand where they're coming from. Pull back, and then if I were in your shoes, I would start by asking that person to tell you about his childhood and his relationship with his mother. Because faith builds on reason. Grace builds on nature. If that relationship was broken, it's going to be a lot harder to bring him to Our Lady. You need to understand what you're dealing with. Does that make sense? Oftentimes, it's not about the theology. It's about the life that we lived. That's where you find the pain. Make sense? Okay. You had a question? I just want to make sure nobody else has a question because it might take longer. No, no, please go ahead. <laughs> All right, so you said a few things. Some things I agreed with, some I, something I disagreed. But let's talk about what you said in the beginning. You said you wrote this book to approach the next generation on their turf, not our turf, because they've been so immersed into this language of video games, of stories that they've forgotten what Catholic terminology actually means. But still, it's problematic to approach them with the, the sort of presentation you provided today, because what you made were kind of conclusory statements about the people who, who already take the Bible as the law. I'm sorry, my story is a high fantasy novel. Yes, yes, okay. no, I'm just like speaking generally. Okay. The perspective of, you know, doing a speech about what, what, who God is and what Jesus is and all, all these things. I think a better approach is to go and approach these topics by defining what God is in the first place. And I don't just mean like defining God as in like being, you know, this loving, you know, all good being rather getting into what St. Thomas Aquinas talked about, St. Augustine and other Catholic theologians to defining God as a metaphysically simple reality and not a being, but being itself. Yeah. And talking about these things might seem hard because most people are not into philosophy and most people are not into theology. But you began by saying, hey, you asked us, like, you're in, you're in the law, you're in medicine, all of that. That shows that most people, most people here have degrees that are high, that they're educated, and they're capable of understanding the intelligible reality of the universe and even the metaphysical reality of whatever lies out there. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of people give those sort of speeches you just provided. And the people who already believe accept them and they nod their head and they leave. And the people who don't, or the people who are on the fence just say, well, this person is making conclusory statements. Things, he's already assuming the truth of the Bible, he's assuming his methodology which by, by which he interprets the Bible, and then goes on to say, this is what Jesus is, and this is what reality is, yeah. and that's why I should follow the church. A better approach, I would suggest, is to approach things from you know, the bare minimum of reality, from logic. What is logic anyway, and why, why do we have to follow it? And do we, can we, can we not follow it? And what is God? Defining those terms from the beginning and then getting into the Bible will be a better approach because you'll be able to understand who God is, what Christ is, and what, what Christ is doing. And, and, so, and that would affect our interpretation of the Bible. So, for instance, so, so hold on. 
the purpose of this study, it's a one hour thing, right? If you go to my Bible, to my website, corbono.com, I have a 53 talks on the book of Genesis, on the book of Genesis alone. Okay. I, I haven't come here to establish the existence of God. I came here to this group because they're the Maronite Youth Association with the assumption that these are believers who may or may not understand the scriptures. And I take a very direct approach because I want to help them deepen their understanding of the scriptures based on what the church teaches. So I didn't come here to establish the existence of God from first principles. That's not at all my intention. That would be a completely different topic. Now I agree with you, this is directed to people who believe. This is not directed to people who do not believe. And maybe I should have started by saying that, I just assumed it. Um, like I said, the, I take the stand that the scripture is true, that God exists, and our job is to understand what he's telling us. I don't take the stand of, let's prove that God exists from first principles. That would be a completely different conversation. It's an important one. I completely agree with you. It's one that needs to be done, but that was never my, my thing. So I, I, I hope this helps you a little bit understand where I'm coming from. Yeah, I perhaps did not express myself really clearly. Okay. What I meant is that to understand those principles inform your understanding of the Bible and of what Christ is. So somebody who has that understanding, when they, it sheds new light on the Bible when you read it. I mean, because you've said things today and people might interpret, they might believe that you, you meant one thing, but in reality you meant something different. And they, we leave thinking that we all agree, but in reality we have different conceptions. And I can give you an anecdote. I was sitting in some doctor's office one day waiting to, for my appointment, and this lady was talking to the receptionist. And the lady was telling her, her uh, the receptionist about what happened to her son. She said he was in a car accident, and he, he was saved. And the receptionist, this was part of God's plan. And what she meant by that, she proceeded to say, well, you know, the whole accident was caused by God, so he can save this guy and then show his glory, which is sort of, you know, a non-sound theological and philosophical reasoning about the nature of God, because God does not do evil. Rather, he permits it. And people... Hold on. What's the difference between the permissible will of God and his active will. Can you tell me? Because I'll tell you right now, I haven't yet seen one definition that make any sense. Sure. So for you to do something, that means you have the nature that allows you to do that thing. Mm -hmm. That means you are capable of doing that thing. To permit that thing, that doesn't mean you have that capability, but rather you do not intervene to, the, to do that thing. But if God didn't permit it, would it, ha would it have happened? No, no, but because if, if, if we go so my point is, my point is, what I'm trying to tell you is, all these are really important points, but they're kind of a little, I'm sorry, kind of a little bit aside from what I'm trying to do here, right? My goal was to start from where St. Thomas started from. You mentioned St. Thomas. St. Thomas took the scripture as being the word of God. This is the truth. Our job is to understand it. Most of what we know about God doesn't come from first principle or, the, or, or philosophy. It actually comes from the scriptures. Because the Trinity is not something that, is, that our reason is capable to understand. That's St. Thomas. The Trinity is revealed to us by God when Jesus came. Without the coming of Jesus, none of us would have been able to even imagine or conceive the Trinity. So therefore, we take Scripture, which is the Word of God, and our job is to understand it and see how it applies to our lives with the intent to go to heaven. That's what the purpose of this talk is. 
everything else you're talking about is important and critical to um, you know to broaden the reach of the church to go out to people who do not believe but that was not what I was trying to do here most of us like we know God we know like yeah that's what you mean like when you came here um, we, all of us we love God we uh, we just need to know more about him not like start from the beginning this is basically the context. So I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear from the beginning, but that's what I was trying to do here. Okay? And maybe we can take that offline. Thank you. Yes? Uh, can you explain a little bit on the, the concept of faith as an act of the intellect versus the act of, an act of the will? Oh, um, wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. Okay, great. So the question is, why is faith an act of the intellect, not an act of the will? This is really key because this is precisely what Luther did. Luther took faith from act of the intellect and made it an act of the will. When somebody says, all you need to do to be saved is to believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that's an act of the will. Okay? But faith is an act of the intellect, meaning what? Meaning that you have to know God. Faith is the supernatural faculty, the supernatural virtue, which allows your reason to know God in ways, in ways that are impossible to reason alone. So just as your reason is capable of apprehending the world and understanding the laws of this world and how it functions, Faith is a supernatural faculty that cleaves to reason and allows you then to understand as much as we can in this world, the Trinity. And as St. Thomas says, we understand so we can love more and we can love more so we can understand more. So therefore, faith and charity works conjointly. And that faculty becomes essential for our salvation. We're saved by our reason because this is how we can be certain of the truth. This is how we can turn to God and say, yes, I love you. Because you can only love what you know and you can really know what you love. Does that make sense? Okay, you will not start there. <laughs> you can't start with faith as a fact of the reason of someone who's a non-believer. If you're dealing with somebody who's a non-believer, there are two avenues you can take in dealing with someone who's a non-believer. The first one is to ask them a simple question. How come this whole universe is intelligible? And by this I mean, how come there are ways for us to understand how this universe functions? And then if they tell you, well, there is a universe, there's a parallel universe, there is, you know, um, quantum mechanics made things come out of nothing, you agree with them and you ask them, where are those laws that make that possible? And if they're honest, they will tell you they're not in this universe. I can't go to Orion and find the laws that make this universe function written there somewhere. 
So by the principle of causality, those laws are outside of this universe. And that's how you start. That's one argument that you can give them. Why is this universe intelligible? The second one is about logic. And you can ask them this question. Typically, most atheists are, pride themselves on being logical. Right? Being loving of, lovers of science. Wonderful. You ask them this question. Using logic alone, prove to me that logic is logical. Let me repeat it. It's a little tongue twister. Using logic alone, prove to me that logic is logical. Most people assume that logic is logical. What do I mean by that? I mean that if I give logic a sentential statement, if I take a logical sentential statement, I can always derive from first principle whether the statement is true or false. That's what it means for logic to be logical. Any well-formed sentential logical statement should be proven to be true or false. Guess what? That's not the case. Because of a, of, a, of a logician who, in 1921, came with this theorem. It's called Gödel's incompleteness theorem that shows that every logical system is incomplete or inconsistent. I'm throwing a lot at you, I know, but um, those two avenues, if you take them with somebody who's really an atheist and honest, he, he would have to agree that there is more to this universe than physical reality. And then he would have to agree that we are using logic with faith. Because inside of logic, there is a fundamental inconsistency, inconsistency built into it. There are paradoxes that could not be proven true or false. So uh, those are the two avenues by which you can attack the problem. Don't talk to them about specifics. Don't argue with them that multi-universe doesn't exist. Or that's not worth even bothering with. It's why is this, why, why is this whole universe intelligible? How come our intelligence is able to understand it? And what are those laws that governs it? And the principle of causality says they must precede its existence, at least logically. Where are they? Well, they must be outside of time, outside of space. They're immaterial. They're eternal. And that is the kernel of the truth for what would, call, what would be the idea or notion of God. And when you destroy the idea that logic is the supreme thing that reigns over everything, and you show that it is in itself inconsistent, then you break from this whole idea that science is enough to actually explain everything, because that's not true. And again, if you want more, there is a lot written on the subject. You need to arm yourself with this conversation. The last thing I'll tell you, if you're dealing with an atheist, another approach is to put that away and try to know that person, really know them. What was the childhood like? Where, where is this breakdown? Where is the pain? Where is the, 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 the anger? And if you can go there, there might be even an easier route than anything I told you. Yeah? Okay, but I would not start with faith being a, a principle of intellect. There's, there is a lot of fun. There's a whole foundation built on, on, that you have to sort of expand, which is going to be kind of a little difficult dealing with an atheist. Does that make sense? Okay. Do you have another question? Okay. All right. You're welcome. You shouldn't have to do that. We have a little gift, and this is a tradition with us. So it's a little gift from us. Okay. To say thank you. Thank you. So thank you for coming. Oh, you're welcome. We appreciate it. You're welcome. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Christmas and uh, uh, Turkey Day. Video. <laughs> yeah. I 
Oh, you can send it to um, Maestro. That one? Uh, let me set. I don't have my glasses. M-A-E-S-T-R-O-N-A-G. N-A-J. Yep, yeah. perfect. Okay, I yeah. have it. This is yours. Uh, yeah, I'll probably have it by... Okay. 